Thank you so much. Hi, how's everyone doing? Well done, Clay. Where's Clay? Like, you got the pitch. You got, he, he, he sings a song a cappella, and you get the guitarist and finds the key. When I do that, my, my worship leader tells me, I'm like, have you found the key? And like, that key doesn't exist, Martin. <laughs> when I try to sing out of the song, I end up singing in J, the key of J. Sometimes the, the key of, of, of W, you know, so that was so good. It was good catching up um, with, uh, with Pastor Greg too. Uh, I always know that, you know, when we get together, what I can do is um, I can ask him a question that will always help me get a feel of where his faith level is, where his sanctification level is, the fruit of the Spirit. I just greet him and I ask him, how's the Liverpool Football Club doing? <laughs> and uh, I get to see the faith or I get to see fruit or a good mix of both. But no, it's always, it's always an honor um, to be here with you guys and um, with um, Greg and Danny. So he mentioned to me that tonight's really cool because I can, I can do a little bit of a smorgasbord. You know, I can just pick up on a few things as we talk a little bit about some aspects of discipleship. And so I, I am, I'm going to just basically break um, almost like three messages down to, into one. Um, they all go for about an hour and a half, so we should get home by about midnight. So I am kidding. See? No, not yet, but they will be. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, if I'm still going at midnight, you'll be complaining. <laughs> but thank you for the encouragement. That's, that's really awesome. So I got, we got my little timer going, so I'm going to make sure that we, we use our time well and we steward it well. Uh, can I start off by sharing a really cool testimony? Um, one of the things I've been speaking a lot into our, into our church, into our faith community on over the last number of months is the, the power of spiritual acoustics. The power of spiritual acoustics, the power of sound. Um, you know, the, everything in this world was formed through sound. You know, it was at the word, at the, the voice of God that things came into existence. And what I've loved is just studying over the last 12 months. Um, you know, I don't know if we appreciate just how privileged we are to be living in this generation where science and technology is so advanced exponentially over the last decade or two that now science is actually using that technology to validate what the Word of God has always told us for thousands of years. Things that you and I used to have to believe at face value or even faith value. Um, science literally now has the ability in its computing power and its even everything from its microscopic aspects of looking at subatomic structures to, to validate the Word of God. And if you want to do any study on this, you'll find that what science is, is now quantifying and validating is that literally all matter in its sort of smallest level is simply sound or frequency. It's all literally just vibration, sound and frequency, every atomic thing. And one of the things I loved, and I was sharing it with my church, is that, you know that picture you often see of a wine glass shattering because somebody creates what's called entrainment, where they introduce the same frequency for long enough to matter that actually the molecules in there that are already vibrating and moving, but you can't see it because it's so subatomic, get so excited with this introduction of the same frequency at a certain volume and certain um, prolongation that all of a sudden it's almost like matter starts to dance with the sound introduced to it. And then all of a sudden the glass goes... But when they've filmed that before, you know, my, my son is a film cameraman, works in the movie industry, 
And you'll know that film was always basically 24 frames per second, 24 single pictures every second. Now, with the advancement in digitization, they can do literally thousands and even tens of thousands of frames per second. And now that same illustration of a wine glass breaking, they will show you as a sound's introduced, as somebody sings into that microphone or whatever, that solid matter, that solid glass, in the milliseconds before it actually breaks, the molecules are so excited that that glass flexes every part of it up to a centimetre in expansion. And you could never see it before. You can actually Google this stuff when you get home. If you're bored tonight, Google this stuff. And you literally suddenly see this glass just literally flex and move. You're like, no, no, it can't do that. It's solid. This thing doesn't flex. It's like, no, actually it does. Because everything in creation, the word of God says all things were created by him, for him, through him, for his glory, etc. Everything was created. And it's now um, identifying the power of sound, which in essence is reflecting the fact that this creation was spoken into being. As, as one great creationist puts it, it's like all of this, this subatomic matter was there. And at the voice of Christ, as he spoke the worlds into being, all matter then formed literally scurried, formed to the shape of whatever he declared. And I'll give you another example as I'm leading up to a testimony um, of what just happened this weekend in our own church. Um, one of the things that, that is really interesting is that when kingdom people start to understand the power of sound, then we start to give more weight to this concept of our words form our world. Right? We've always believed that. The word of God says the power of life and death is in the tongue. Literally, your words can form and shape your world. And uh, I read an interesting article recently that was basically the result of 10 years' worth of work by a, a kingdom-principled believer, born-again believer, who set out to try and answer part of the world's problem to feeding the poor. How do we increase greater product productivity from the crops of the ground and the seed? And through God's leading in science, he actually felt to consider the effect, literally, of sound being introduced into um, horticulture to create greater yields of crops. And the reason he did this was because he had understood in the previous 10 years how science had made these advanced studies in what they call sonic bloom. Not sonic boom, but sonic bloom. And what it is is that scientists have recognized that wherever there's deforestation, right, rainforest, any forest gone, what goes with it is bird life. Now, when bird life goes, the dawn chorus is lost. We all know what the dawn chorus is. It's that incessant chirping and singing of all those birds before the sun rises, literally just shaking all of, all of creation with a sound. And, and it's like people just like the birds are just singing to one another, like, hey, get up, you know, we're going to eat. Um, but what they noticed and have correlated is that whenever there's deforestation and the loss of bird life and sound, the crops that even still remain. So it's not like, yeah, well, it's obvious you get less crops because it's deforestation. No, no. The crops that are there, their, their actual yield drops 30, 40, 100 fold, 100 percent. And at first they theorized, was well, this, you know, fertilization of the bird life and that. Do you know what they actually discovered? And again, it's only because of this day and age in which we live, Greg. It's only because of the advancement of, of technology and subatomic microscopes and things like that. But they actually discovered that the dawn chorus is literally the birds calling out of the ground that which they will consume. Hang with me for a minute. What it is is that the plants, most plant life, if not all, 
they discovered received nearly as much nutrients from above the soil level as below it. Photosynthesis, the atmosphere, sunlight, you name it. But what literally determines how much they receive is what sound is introduced to them. And this is how it works. You'll love this, especially with the whole orchestra thing. Because what it is, is is within the cell structure of every plant, its leaves, its stems, everything, within the cell, they've now, again, through the the sub-microscopic levels, they've been able to identify, validate, scientifically prove that there's pores within the cells themselves, literally pores that look like an eye. They're called stomata. And what happens is they dilate like an eye opening. And the amount they dilate determines how much they get. So literally like a well opening up or something, how much water it receives, sunlight, nutrients from the air, you know, carbon monoxide, nitrogen, whatever it is. But these stomata dilate each day. Actually, they basically dilate in the morning. And whatever level they open to, that determines what they receive. And what they've discovered is the one thing that causes them to open is not sunlight. It's sound. And so literally all of the bird's dawn chorus is singing and calling out of those plants, agitating through the vibration, the stomata literally dilates. And so in proven studies where they've done the placebo effects and they get greenhouses and the same nutrients, the same atmospheres, and the only difference is they introduce bird song. Now they start to get crops that are 50%, 60%, 80% higher, and they scientifically have monitored. You can actually, this isn't like a Christian paper I'm telling you. This is PhDs and booklets and doctorates because this industry is called Sonic Bloom now because it's now being used to advance, not through genetic messing with or modification, but literally through the introduction of sound into crops and fields where they're now playing birdsong over crops to get greater yields of food, which in turn feeds the poor. What's interesting, Sandra, is that they've also discovered that in the humanity of sounds, the closest they get to it is Vivaldi's fourth season, which is the whole sort of imitation of birdsong and, and that the sounds of that violin, they play that, they get the same effect, that sort of sound. Yes. You want your plants to grow bigger? So it calls it forth. Now, look, I know I'm in Wellington. I know it's a conservative, you know, in the sense of conservationist, not conservative. Um, but I also know there's also some tech heads here who just don't give a rip about anything I've just said that's to do with horticulture. Um, just for your fun, go and Google the effect of heavy rock bass music on solar cells. Because what the tech industry have also now discovered is if you play heavy bass, powerful, grungy, whatever, music then solar cells will literally charge 10, 15, 20% greater because of the vibration of sound into the process of simply solar cells to a point now where, again, they're working on the fact that they can get cell phones to charge by simply placing them on the shelf of a bar where everyone's talking with the right sort of um, equipment in there. Literally, your phones in the future will charge themselves through the power of sound. Okay, so get to the point, Martin, right? (laughs) This is message one. Um, All of creation. Think about the concept. Literally, the dawn chorus, the birds are singing and calling out of the ground that which they'll consume. Now, (laughs) I love this. The psalmist says in Psalm 107, I shall awaken the dawn. And he goes on and says, I'll awaken the dawn with the stringed instruments. Huh, interesting. Thousands of years ago. I will awaken the dawn. 
And I will use stringed instruments to awaken the door. And what he's saying is, and my question to you is, what are you calling out of the ground? Whether you want to think of plants or a thumping great big bass. You know, I love that bass. I love that grace. Um, what are you calling out to energize your world? Because you see, the Bible says, the power of life and death is in the power of the tongue. They that love it shall eat its fruit. So in other words, I hope you like what you say, because you will eat it. I hope you like what you say, because you shall eat it. The power of the life and death is in the tongue, and they that love it shall eat its fruit. So again, in your household, what are you calling out? We're talking about discipleship. Your personal household, your, your vocation, your, your, your church community. What are your words calling out? Because you're going to eat it. Literally, those birds are determining how much they get to eat by whether they're willing to get up in the morning and literally sing for their supper to shape and form. I was telling my church a lot about this principle. I say, look, I believe in your households. It's so important. You, you know, you might be busy working and ticked off and tired and, and all this, but what are you releasing? What are you forming in your kids by simply coming in and like, oh, I'm tired. Yeah, it's been a rough day. Yeah, no, I'm stressed. Yeah, well, you will be because you're going to eat the fruit you've just declared. It's more than name it and claim it or blab it and grab it. It's literally biblical in the natural as it is in the spiritual. Now, I have got testimony after testimony after testimony of months of, of speaking on this principle of spiritual acoustics. Don't even get me started on sonic weaponry. You know, the concept of this, you know, literally a shout of praise. You know, huh, Second Chronicles, Jehoshaphat, the shout of praise. What literally that, uh, another day, another day. But I've been saying, I've been testimonies from people in my church saying, oh my goodness, since we've acted on that principle and make sure every single morning when we get up to when we go to bed at night, we're releasing not just declarations, but we're releasing a particular sound into our house. Things have started to happen. Literally, things have started to happen. Change of attitudes in kids. Change of attitudes in workplace. Well, how many people saw in the newspaper on the news last week a 55-ton crane tip over and smash and guillotine through a house on Friday up in Auckland? If you haven't, you should Google it. It's horrific. A big five-bedroom house, literally a 55-ton crane tipped over with its boom extended, carrying a 12-ton boat and tipped. It wasn't even their house they were delivering the boat to as a neighbor. The people in that house didn't even, weren't even aware of what's happening. In a sense, they were just doing their normal life. The son was up in the bedroom just doing some homework. Um, the daughter was downstairs. Mum was downstairs finishing a video I'll tell you about in a moment. And all of a sudden, this 55-ton train lifted a boat they thought was 7.5 tons, but it was 12. And it caught a gust, and the whole crane tipped over. And the boom, which is probably about the width of about a metre square, just literally fell on the house and the neighbours. That's how big it was. Sliced it in half right through the boy's bedroom and missed him by about five inches, 125 mil. They're people in our church. It's, it's the Lim family in our church. I tried not to ask them if it would affect their Lim report on their house, but they didn't see the funny side of it. Um, no, actually, I didn't say that. <laughs> but here's the miracle. Front page of the New Zealand Herald. Miracle escape. Boy crawls out of room, right? The whole house literally cut in half. It's a write-off. The whole house is a write-off. 55-ton crane. What's interesting is when this couple got up and testified on Sunday morning, still shaken, still incredibly traumatized, because this is mum downstairs, this is her son upstairs and her daughter there. The boat also fell on the side of the house and crushed the other part of the house. 
They all crawled out and they all survived. But her testimony was this. And literally, you know, Eugene, who plays in our worship team, was the boy up in the bedroom. And he was sitting there reading. And then he looked, he saw the shadow coming towards the house and he just jumped. And this thing just went <laughs> that quick. Meter strong, 55 ton, missed him by about this. Cuts and things on his head from falling debris, but, but saved. Um, his mum got, got up and testified that what they'd been doing that morning, minutes before this crane suddenly fell on their house, which they sort of knew something was happening, but with the neighbour delivering something, um, they had been doing an outreach video for their non-Christian family in Malaysia. They'd done a bit of a holiday in New Zealand. They were putting a Christmas greetings. And they did this family video, and the mother was just editing this video and was laying down a music, a praise worship song onto the video, which she'd felt to do one on grace and protection. And as she was literally laying that music track down, sitting in the lounge to her non-Christian extended family and putting on and playing in the background a song that speaks of protection, she heard a crash, releasing a sound, grace, protection, grace, protection, unbeknown how much she needed that sound in her house. And although they're shaken and literally the house is a write-off and obviously that's all insurance issues and everything, and, um, but the family saved and they got up and were able to testify on Sunday morning, um, not how they would have wanted it to be, but they know how powerful that video will now be to every non-Christian member who listens because the song's in Chinese, worship song speaking of God is a God who protects, God is a God of grace before the thing fell. So isn't that awesome? Very cool. What's that got to do with what I'm talking about tonight? Everything. Everything. So part of discipleship is actually formation. And the worlds which we form by our words, the sound that we emanate from our life, that sound, a sound of discipleship, what are we calling forth out of people? What are we calling forth out of the ones we do life with and we journey with? What is this reproducing of Christ in the life of others through our modeling? But also, what is it about the sound? What, what are the stories that we tell? What are the declarations that we, we make that we can model and support with our lifestyles and, and his grace that actually form people? Because if our words and a sound from our life forms our world, what is the sound that comes? I want you to look at Second Kings chapter 2. Actually, wondering, could somebody grab me a glass of water? Is that possible? Thank you. There's always one there. Oh, look at that. Thanks, Clay. You're a legend. Thank you. See that? I called it forth. It was already growing in the ground. It just <laughs> came straight up. In Second Kings chapter 2, I've become more and more enamored with this chapter in the recent probably 18 months. Because it's a story of what I believe is one of the most powerful discipleship processes that we see anywhere outside the literal discipleship journey of Christ and his disciples we read about in the Gospels. And the reason why is because if you know the account, it's where Elijah, one generation, is going to transfer to another generation, Elisha, this mantle in grace to be God's representative to his people. And you've probably heard lots of messages preached on it, and I'm, I'm in that category. But the reason I've become more and more enamored with it recently is because 
I'm more and more passionate now about deployment than I am about the theory or, or, or even just process. I'm, I, I think what the church doesn't do well is deployment. You're like, well, what's deployment? You know, that concept of that, you know, when Christ ascended, he'd accomplished this mission. He was able to deploy his people into a world to change it, right? The reason I'm passionate about this passage is because we all stop at the point when, you know, Elisha receives the double portion, the mantle, and Elijah goes to heaven, and we go full stop. There's no full stop in the Bible. The next verse is that Elisha walks across the dry ground, and the people of a cursed city come out and meet him and identify God on him by saying, my Lord, the city where we're situated is awesome. It's well situated. It's beautiful. But its, its waters are polluted. And the, the, the city's barren and unfruitful. And you know the story. Elisha says, get me a bowl, a new bowl. And they put salt in it. And he says, lead me to the stream where the city drinks, the spring. And he throws salt into it. Said, Look, it's a great picture of transformation. I'm not going to preach on that today. But what I love about it is the fact that it's literally a deployment. Like we make this big mistake as preachers of telling everyone all about the double portion and the mantling from heaven and, and, and God's transformational journey in our lives. But it had a point. The ultimate point was that not only did the transformed person receive a double portion, but actually they used it. <laughs> I know that's revelation for a lot of people, but they used it. You know, the mantle actually it worked. It was functional. It actually affected a city. You know, this grace of God, this, this, this journey of transformation, this discipleship process in the end had a point, right? It had an outworking that in actually becoming all what this person was meant to be and receiving all that was promised to him, he actually then went and put it to use. And so in this process, I've become so passionate about this passage that it made me dig a lot deeper into what I normally just read at surface value again. And that is like, well, okay, Elijah's going from A to B to C to D, basically just to get to the Jordan, to get this mantle. But what it made me do was sort of ask the question, why did God particularly ask Elijah before he was taken to heaven to take this young man, Elisha, who worked with him faithfully for a number of years and served him, why did he ask him to literally go on a circuit that wasn't lineal, but it was random? Like, if you know the story, it starts off in 2 Kings 2. You know, they were at Gilgal, and then he goes on to Bethel, and he takes Elijah. And each time he says, look, you're welcome to stay, but I'm going on. And then they go from there to Bethel, and then they leave Bethel and go to um, Jericho. And each again, it's like, well, you know, you don't have to come, but if you want to, it's up to you, you know. And then they end up at the Jordan. There's this, it's not like, you know, okay, well, let's drive. Let's go from Wellington. <laughs> Let's stop in at, you know, at, at um, uh, Turangi and then let's sort of stop again in the Tron at Hamilton and then, then we'll get to Auckland and then we're heading up to the Bay of Islands. It's, it's, it's not like this fastest way on State Highway 1. It's like from here to here to here to here. Like, you know what, you could have just come around that way. It would have been quicker. So there's symbolism in each of these stages. But more than that, it's actually really a story of discipleship. Because at every one of these places... There was a memorial at Gilgal, at Bethel, Jericho, even the Jordan. There were literally memorials based on what God had already done in the lives of previous generations. And the more I read in the research of it is that what we read about here, where we've got an older man with this younger mentor, this younger disciple, 
taking him to places and then interacting. It wasn't like quick stop here, fill up petrol, go to the loo, <laughs> you know, grab a can of Coke and, and some pineapple lumps and a bag of bluebird chips and let's move on. It's like every place they got, they stopped for probably two or three days. They interacted with the faith community that was there, always with the company of the prophets, right? They, they, they did something there. Well, what they tell you is, of course, in Middle Eastern and in Jewish culture, this was actually a rite of passage. What families used to do, what mothers and fathers used to do with their children. You see, I know it's surprising to, to this generation, but actually they didn't have Facebook then. They didn't have Instagram or Vine. They didn't have Twitter. Thank God they didn't have Tinder. They, um, you're not supposed to know what that is. Um, they didn't have iPhoto and iDVD and you know, Dropbox to store family photos. Like, you know, the only way they would actually know anything about the past, right, and experiences was not to open up the family album, but literally to go to a place and to sit down with their kids and talk about what was significant about this place and God and people. And it's really amazing because they start off at a place called Gilgal, and Gilgal is symbolic of, of covenant and consecration, commitment. If you want to do a spiritual journey, it's salvation, surrender to the Lordship of Christ, surrender to his kingdom. You know, by the way, one of the best definitions of the kingdom is this, the, and, and especially seek ye first. It's the pursuit of God's reign in your everyday life. That's seeking the kingdom. What does seeking the kingdom look like? Don't over-spiritualize. It's simply the pursuit of the reign of Christ in your everyday life. And that whole Gilgal is symbolic of where the children of Israel finally crossed over out of the wilderness and, and they arrived at Gilgal and that's when they got the sort of knives out and did the whole circumcision thing and the covenant and the word means to roll away, you know, reproach and all this stuff. Um, basically it was a place of covenant. Um, but if you read in the fine print, you know, literally reading the verses of the Bible, they were told to pick up stones. One per tribe, boulders basically, big rocks. And they were to take them from the middle of the river where God had parted the waters at flood, right? And they were to take these stones and they were to pick them up and they were to build a memorial. And the Bible says for this reason, so that in future generations when your children ask, what does these stones symbolize? You will tell them about deliverance and God's care for his people. And so literally what they did, a bit like our trig stations when you're driving you know, up the highways, they would come to a mound of stones, and this mound of stones was a memorial or an altar. And the parents would come and the children would say, what's all this about? Why did somebody build this here? And they would say, well, let me tell you where the stones came from. Let me tell you how, how generations ago when our people um, were... were outside of God's promise, how God made a way for them uh, through the courage and obedience of Joshua and leaders who brought them into the promised land we now enjoy. And this was the hardships they suffered. This is how God delivered us from Egypt and Pharaoh. And, and these stones were taken from the middle of an experience. See, these were often referred to as testimonies or, or memorials. They were basically testimony to what had happened. There's nothing like looking at something that's literally a testimony. I mean, look, on the plane in New Zealand, you can now get a coin 
for the launch of the Hobbit movie, a, a, a coin, which is awesome. But the fact is they've embedded into it in the picture of the little door of Hobbiton in the coin a, a tiny bit of the wood that's actually used on the set for the Hobbit. Now, the marketers are smart enough to know there's nothing like touching something and saying, this literally was part of that door, you know. Go up into the room where JFK was shot in Dallas and, and, and put your hand on the ledge of where the gunman, or one of the gunmen, depending if you're a conspiracy theorist or not, um, rested his arm to, to literally take out a president. It's one thing to hear the story, but to stand there, let me tell you, it's very emotional. It's very significant, right? And so these kids would come up and they'd touch stones and they'd look out at this huge river and flood. This is discipleship. They'd look out at this river and flood. They'd be like, well, what do these stones symbolize? And then Dad would say, you know, they all came from the middle of the river. How's that possible? This is what God did. This is what people did. And, you know, the whole memorial was then to talk about what God did, salvation, deliverance, right? So in our journey of discipleship, the foundational thing is, is what are we doing to tell the stories of covenant? Like, you know, and whether you want to say whether it's your words or your life, because the two have to correlate, right? Otherwise, one witness cancels the other witness out. If we're displaying grace, and by the way, by that I'm not describing a perfect life. I'm actually describing a grace-filled life. Because to be honest, some of the things I learned the most was from people who were willing to tell me how they'd lost it, how they'd blown it, how they'd missed it. I remember this earth-shattering day when I remember quite upset talking to my pastor, and I'd only been saved less than a year, and saying, I wish I was like you, where I had such faith that I'd never doubt the existence of God. He said, what made you think I've never doubted the existence of God? I'm like, oh, yeah, wouldn't he? He said, no, even as a pastor, what makes you think I've never doubted the existence of God? My world started to fall away. It was like, but then he told me how the enemy, one of his arrows is doubt. And actually, the fact that you're a pastor or walk with Jesus for 30 years doesn't mean that you're immune to the arrows of doubt, right? And then he explained to me how faith overcomes. Like, I learned by people's mistakes, not just that, right? So part of this whole journey of discipleship from Second Kings 2 is, is, is the stories of covenant, the stories of kingdom, the stories of lordship, the, the taking people that you're discipling to that place of surrender. Honestly, I don't want to sort of say anything you already probably know, but why would you want to take anyone further than that if they haven't got that? That's why Elijah said to Elisha, actually, you can stay here if you want. I'm going on. In other words, I'm not taking you unless you've got enough of this to want to come for more. Because I'm sick and tired of trying to disciple people who are not surrendered. And the first person I'm talking about is in the first person tense. My frustrations are when I'm not seeing things happen as they should. If I trace it back, often it's because of surrender or lack of surrender. Why can't I get my stuff together? Well, because <laughs> I'm trying to drag this, this life into, into things of God where, where, where well, would help man if you surrendered. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the kingdom of God, the pursuit of the reign of God in everyday life. Yeah, awesome. The next one gets really cool. I like the next one. Because what he does is he then, he then takes, he takes this disciple. You know, he's, he's, he spent time bringing him into an experience of stories and, and hunger for, for conversion, for consecration, for surrender. And then he takes him to a place called Bethel. And we all know what Bethel means, right? Bethel is the house of God. Yep, that's what I used to think. 
And if you're preaching this simply on a basis of get people saved, then get them into the house of God, and then we'll get them to Jericho, and we'll talk about the supernatural and all that stuff in a minute. But again, you see, Bethel wasn't just a town. It was a memorial. It was a whole pile of stones. Actually, four years ago, I, I, I spoke a, a brief message to leaders in this church on literally the story of, of Jacob and his encounter at Bethel. But just for two or three minutes now, what's powerful about Second Kings 2 is Elijah, in a process of discipleship, took um, Elisha to a place where there was a memorial called Bethel, or actually El Bethel, as they'd, they'd renamed it. And he told him stories of discipleship on the theme of transformation. See, Bethel, the house of God, yeah, where do we get that from? We get that from the fact that, that Jacob, on the run from deceiving, lying, cheating, and screwing up his dysfunctional family, runs because his brother's going to kill him because he's just manipulated and ripped him off for the birthright and deceived his father on his deathbed, seemingly. And he runs away and he gets to a field and he goes to sleep that night. He grabs a rock, the rock, and he sticks his head on this rock for a pillow. And then, you know, the Bible says he has this wild, real dream, experiential dream, where he sees this, this ladder or stairway to heaven and angels are going up and down. And then he says, and then above it all, I saw God. Can I just say one thing? Because we all love the supernatural experience. If your supernatural experience, because that's angels going up and down and up, you know, all this manifestations, if in all that you don't see the Lord above it all, question what you're seeing. <laughs> right? I love supernatural experiences. And by that, I don't mean that you should ever be able to explain it all. The best ones you can't explain. Actually, the best ones don't even make sense. Right? Just supernatural. It's awesome. But one common denominator is you will see God in it. That's why people say, look, I don't know how that happened or what that happened. I, I can't even explain it necessarily, but I know God was there. You know, he sees God above it all. And then, you know, what happens is um, God starts prophesying all over him. If you want a model for discipleship, because that's what tonight's about, right? This concept of discipleship. It's God who knows Jacob so well that actually he knows who Jacob is is who Jacob is pretending to be and also who he's going to become. You know what I really love about this life of Jacob? It's so cool. If you want to cut to the end of the story, you know when he's wrestling with God, with the Lord, with the angel of the Lord, and the first thing God says to him him is, "Um, what's your name? How many people thought, what, is God like, you know, dare I say it, um, Alzheimer's or dementia, like, does he forget this is the all-knowing God? And he's like, what's your name? You know? Now, the only reason I say that is because I had a father who passed away with Alzheimer's. And I'm not making fun of it, but actually, to be honest, humor was one of the few ways we could get through it. And one of the things is, you know, like, hi, and you're talking to him for 10 minutes, and he's like, what's your name? I preached in a church. I've got to be careful when I say what country, right? I preached in a church once, Greg, in, um, in a country in Asia. And it was a large church, about 5,000 people, and they honored their elders as they should. But their two governing elders, one of them was so old, so old that literally he was experiencing dementia. And they loved him, they honored him, which was fantastic. But he also still had a governing vote in every decision they made. And his vote was 50% of the other elders' vote. And I'm sitting on the front row, and he shakes my hand. He says, hi, what's your name? I told him. He says, well, what are you here for? I said, I'm actually your guest. I'm speaking today. He said, oh, that's, that's wonderful. And then you know, 10 minutes later, when they stand up and turn around and say, hi, he asked me the same question, right? 
And I said to the pastor afterwards, who's a lovely guy, I said, look, I said, oh, you know, was that me? And he goes, no, 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 that's, that's him. He said, actually, and this pastor had been leading the church for 15 years. He said, last week the elder invited my wife to come to the new people's lounge. <laughs> so, which was fantastic, right? So actually, like I said, my father suffered from Alzheimer's. I know the horror, I know the pain of it, I know the ugh of it. But actually, you know what? Even with himself, sometimes we just had to laugh, not at him, but with him, right? But I look at this passage and I'm like, God's like, what's your name? It's like, no, no, he knew his name. But you know what's really interesting? Is, is God says to Jacob, what's your name? Because the last time a father asked Jacob what was his name, he said, I'm someone I wasn't. He said, my name is Esau. I wonder how many people that we're discipling, or even on the discipleship journey, is we're actually trying to be someone we're not. And if you ever want to get really, really into the funkiness of this, because I love God's code, if you actually have a look at the Bible, and I haven't even got the references here, so you have to check it later, but let's say, for example, it's 25 verse 37, if... Whatever the Bible verse is where, where Jacob's literal father, Isaac, says, who are you? What's your name? It's like Genesis, whatever it is, verse 37. It's literally the opposite. It's 37 verse 25 when God says, what's your name? It's like literally the complete opposite. And he goes, my name's Jacob. Finally admits who he is. And God's like, I can fix that. But he spent all this time trying to be someone else. So he'd lived all of his life trying to be his brother. And he actually had. You know, his brother was popular with dad. His brother was the hunter. His brother had got the birthright. His brother was the firstborn. His brother, brother. So he, he, he tries to be someone he's not all his life. And he, he can't please his dad. He can't fulfill this. He, he, he ends up having to rip his brother off and deceive his dad. But you see, here's the point I'm getting at. When God came to him in Bethel, which he later called the house of God, God starts prophesying over this punk, dysfunctional, messed up, broken, mess of humanity, on the run, a death warrant from his own brother, left his father on his deathbed, deceived. I mean, it's horrible stuff. And then God rocks up and goes, let me tell you all about the blessings on your life. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to bless you. Actually, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This is going to happen and that's going to happen and you're going to do this and literally prophesize that this punk, messed up, dysfunctional, misfit kid is going to literally rule the spiritual world. And again, if you, before you thought God had a problem with his memory, now you think God's got a problem with his judgment. It's like, don't you know who this kid is? You know, like your GPS coordinates are wrong. Like, this kid's a punk. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even let him serve I wouldn't even let him serve, I was going to say the coffee in church, but that's actually a cool position, by the way. Like, you know how you, sometimes you've got people in church life that you've got to try and find somewhere for them to serve which has nothing to do with people? Don't give them the cafe. That's the coolest place, right? So I would be like, that's what I'd be doing with this guy. But God prophesies over him and says, I'm going to make you this. That, until you look carefully enough and actually see that everything God prophesied over this kid was future tense. I will bring you to this place. I will make you. I will do this and you will come. The only thing that was present tense is he said this, I am with you. So why does Bethel speak about discipleship? And it's probably virtually as far as I'm going to get. Why does Bethel speak about discipleship, not just the house of God? 
Because Bethel is where Jacob encountered God and received the promise that I will transform you. That you might be the biggest screw-up on the planet right at this point in time. But now let me tell you, if you're willing to journey with me, what your outcome will look like. And so he prophesies, this will happen and this will happen and this, and you're going to become this. If you know your Bible, it's a 20-year journey of discipleship. And some of the tools of discipleship were pretty freaky. One of them was called Uncle Laban, who used the tool of sowing and reaping to disciple him. Can I just check the grace measure here for a moment? Here we go. I asked my own church this. If I was to tell you that God used the principle of sowing and reaping on Jacob, right? you ripped off your brother, you deceived him. You know how everyone talks about the story when Jacob you know, goes to marry the, the girl in the family that he was attracted to, and then he wakes up in the morning, and it's the sister who's not to him so attractive? It's a good lesson not to drink on your wedding night, right? <laughs> And if you know the story, it's awesome because he gets all ticked off and he comes and he says to his, to his father-in-law, how dare you do this? You know, I, I, I loved this one and you gave me the unattractive sister and you've ripped me off. And then Laban sort of says, hey, in our culture, it's not cool for the younger to be given before the firstborn. Huh. How many people know that's what goes around, comes around? In other words, he got ripped off by the mistwisting of a firstborn principle, the same way he stole the birthright, by twisting the firstborn. Now, I then asked my church, how many people think that's sowing and reaping? Everyone's like, yeah. And I'm like, how many people think sowing and reaping is punishment? Because if you think what Laban was doing under God's direction was punishing him, that it's karma, <laughs> I'm going to make you feel what you felt. I'm going to, you know, you did this, therefore I'm going to equalize this by getting you back. It's, that had nothing to do with punishment but it had everything to do with instruction and discipleship. Because for him in that particular case, the best instruction for transformation was for him to reap and feel and experience something he'd sown. For what purpose? To punish him? To get even? To balance the universe? <laughs> no. So he could learn and go, that doesn't actually feel right. <laughs> actually, that hurts. But for him, it was 20 years of reflective transformational discipleship, getting back to the point. Hmm. After 20 years, he ends up wrestling God, putting aside everything he'd manipulated, and just encountering God. Encountering God, wrestling him, and this time saying, not through my own abilities I'm going to be able to get a birthright. He's like, I just won't let you go till you bless me. And then God asks him one question. What's, what's your name? <laughs> Esau. <laughs> I'm Jacob. God says, no, you're not. It's what you were. You're now Israel. You're now one who, who, who is with God and prevails. You're a, you're a prince. of. You're going to be everything I promised you. So what happens is Jacob goes back on the journey, a transformed person, no longer driving, but leading, all these things you could talk for ages on. And he goes back, not just to the town, he goes back to Bethel. And the Bible says in Genesis, he goes back to the memorial, to the stones that he built. Because after he woke up 20 years earlier, he said, oh my goodness, God was in this place and I didn't even know it. And he named the place Bethel, the house of God, and he built a memorial there. 
20 years later, he comes back, the memorial's still there. The only difference is the Bible tells us he changed his name. And he went and actually had a private encounter session with God and renamed the memorial. Instead of it being the house of God, the Bible says he renamed it El, Bethel, the God of the house of God. Now, I'm a preacher. I'm a leader of a church. So is this couple here. Um, Do we want you to love the house of God? Mm. Do we want you to love the house of God, but not the God of the house? Mm. (laughs) Like, honestly, if I preached about Bethel and we've got a discipleship, get people involved in church and the house of God, and yes, these are all good things, but no, no, it took Jacob 20 years of doing stuff to realize, oh, it's not just the house of God, it's the God of the house of God. And why? Because he'd finally encountered him. He knew of him 20 years earlier. He knew his promises 20 years earlier. He knew his word 20 years earlier. He knew his supernatural 20 years earlier. But after 20 years of discipleship, he literally knew him. So here's the point. I don't know how long your, your journey of discipleship is taking with others. Because I know how long your journey of discipleship will take. Like mine, it will take a lifetime. Right? But one of the purest measures has got to be, have I seen this person come to Christ? Are they involved in church? Yes. As if we had, on another occasion, we'll talk about Jericho. It speaks of encounter with God, the supernatural, all this stuff. Jordan, you name it. But let's just stop here. Surely the truest measure is that the people you disciple come to a place where it's no longer about Bethel, but El. It's all about El Bethel. And when you start to see the people you're discipling switch onto that in every arena, including the supernatural, yep, okay, miracles of God or God of miracles. Miracles of God are awesome. I've seen them since I was born again. I was born again into a move of God where the miracles were happening everywhere. Um, But I've got to be honest and confess it took me a while to actually understand the God of miracles. I love the house of God. I'm committed to it. I believe in it. I believe it's the vehicle of the kingdom. There's more to the kingdom than the church, but it's the vehicle. I've shared that with you. But what I've got to also understand about the supernatural and all these different areas in the house of God is discipleship's truly measured finally when people start putting L in front of everything. Amen? Okay. So finishing off. Gee, that was only two of my three messages. No, I'm kidding. Finishing, yeah. Finishing off this way. If I jump straight to the final part, Ultimately, this thing still has to turn into deployment. Because they that know their their God, they that know their God shall do wonders. They that know their God. And the whole point in the book of Daniel says, they that know their God shall do wonders. Um, Ultimately, Elijah is successful in the discipleship process with Elisha. Salvation, consecration, um, discipleship, the house of God, encounter the supernatural, transformation, um, commissioning. You know, the Jordan's all about commissioning, receiving that mantle. But what he's most, most successful in is that he was able to absence himself from the equation and yet still see the outcome. 
Elijah went to heaven before Elisha started using the mantle. And I love models that talk about, you know, I do, you watch, I do, you help, you do, I help, you do, I watch. And I, I love those mentoring things, you know, like, you know, you've got to pull the arrow back and let me put my hand on it too. But actually Elijah was so successful in discipleship that he actually left. And this kid by himself then actually went on to transform the communities and the cities of this world. The ultimate truth of discipleship um, is not just how good have you been with your apprentice, but in your absence. Amen? And so the church and each one of us have got to get better at commissioning, discipling for the purpose of deployment. You know, the church, we, we don't do so well what other organizations do brilliantly. I mean, the military are a classic. They recruit people to the military. They do basic training, which is based discipleship. They don't put a gun into the hand of some unfit, undisciplined man or woman. They do basic training, boot camp. Then they do combat training or skills where they teach them how to use this stuff. And then they commission, which again is the, the Jordan, you know, the mantle. They put them in rank and order and you're going to be a lieutenant and this and that. Now, if that was the church, all we do then is send them out to recruit again. And we call it a process of Christianity. Well, we get people saved, and then we actually get them discipled, and then we release the gifts on their life, and then we send them out to recruit. Why? So that we can disciple, so that we can um, give them gifts, so that we can commission them, so that they can just go and recruit. Do you notice the army do another thing? It's called deployment. They recruit. They do basic training, they do combat training, they commission in rank and order, and then they actually send them out on peacekeeping missions or on um, combat missions. And I think the true model of discipleship is when do we reach a point where literally we're saying these people have come into encounter with salvation and the person of Christ and his lordship and the processing discipleship and they've been equipped and empowered and we've, we've commissioned them into expressions and roles and giftings and now they're out there changing the world. And part of that process is the natural attraction where people say, I want to be part of that army. How do I recruit? How do I join? Well, have you ever heard about salvation? But we've got to learn how to deploy. And it's the model of Christ. Because just like Elijah and Elisha, Jesus came and he called together a whole bunch of disciples and he brought them, first of all, into salvation. How many people know Peter was a disciple long before he ever, ever, ever was born again or had a revelation of who Christ is? I love it. Like he's following Jesus and all he thinks he is is a rabbi. And then one day something happens where on a boat he goes, oh my goodness, get away from me, I'm unclean. Jesus is like, no, nah, I figured that. <laughs> I've provided for that equation, right? So Jesus, he comes, he calls them, then he brings them into a place of discipleship for years, he trains, he equips them, and then he says this final statement to them. This is what I'll finish on. He says, now... I'm going to ascend on high, just like Elijah, right? He didn't say it just like Elijah, but picture the model. Jesus said, I'm ascending on high. Don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Don't start this thing until you receive the empowerment from on high. When Elijah went up, the mantle fell down. And then Elisha picked it up, and then all that stuff, that transformation, encounter, lordship, lessons, sowing and reaping, <laughs> everything that happened. You're, oh, you want to call down fire? That's awesome. Maybe there's another way, you know, do this. <laughs> right? Oh, you guys are going to get lunch. Yeah, well, what were you doing, Jesus? Um, I had food you know not of. What, you, 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 had, you had a K-bar in your back pocket? No, there was this woman whose life was messed up that you walked past on the way to McDonald's. Like, they, they, did, they learned through chastisement. And then finally what happens is, is, 
is Jesus said, don't move until you receive the mantle from heaven. He goes to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit, and then they deploy. And they go out and turn the world around. Your final tick box on this discipleship journey is when you're not there, Jesus is like, I'm leaving you. Oh, no, he's like, don't worry, I've got it sorted. Another comforter, an empowerer, the parakletos, will be with you. So the measure of discipleship is when you're not there. You've had that small group or that one-on-one discipleship or whatever. Um, is deployment taking place? If you come back, will you find faith on the earth? Amen? Okay, let's pray. Why don't you stand with me today? You've listened to the ravings of a middle-aged man that I hope and I know the Holy Spirit will have taken elements for each person. Thank you, Lord. Mm. You know, there'll be pieces that the Holy Spirit has already tailor-made out of these, these discussions, these preaching, whatever you want to call it, because the thing is, it's his word. It's his word. So already there'll be elements of that that are in life to each person. But if there's one commonality which I'm sensing in all of this meeting tonight is I just felt where God put the weight on this, where he put the glory on this, the, that sense of weight, weightedness was on that concept of making sure the L is in front of everything in our discipleship journey. Bethel, L Bethel. Worship, L worship. Evangelism, L evangelism. My calling, our calling. Not just the callings of God, but the God of callings. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us to experience you in every one of these areas. I pray, Lord, even as we talked about sound and, and declarations, Lord, we declare right now that we want to feel the owl of God in everything. The proton, the firstness of God. The preeminence of God in everything that's our life, our journey, and our callings, and our ministries, and our vocation, and our transformation, and our supernatural experiences. I pray, God, that you would be that Alpha as well as that Omega. Lord, I pray for each person here who's on a journey of uh, the privilege of discipling others. Um, and we're called to disciple nations, God. So, oh my goodness, that's where it really gets fun. We're called, God, to make disciples of nations, those that are outside a relationship with you. So I pray whether we're discipling new believers, whether we're discipling peers and brothers and sisters in Christ, or literally even discipling um, people and systems and, and, and lost people and spheres of society, I'm praying, God, that you'd help us to know what it is to, to journey in all of these things to ensure people encounter you in every of those realms. Your lordship, transformation, supernatural encounter, in Jesus' name. Wow. Well, let's just show our appreciation for, for that. Um, I don't know about anyone else, but... I just felt like I just got washed in the word. And uh, thank you uh, for that, Martin. Um, that'll be online.
So I just want to encourage us to go and once again, you know, this whole feeding, meditating, marinating, chewing over um, is, a, is the pattern of discipleship. And as we've talked about more and more, you know, we are becoming a discipleship-oriented community more than we are a service-orientated community. Still going to meet together, still going to gather together. It's awesome, but there's a shift. There's been a shift happening for four years or so to a, a discipleship-orientated, more transformational of us as his people, not just gathering together and going again and not too much changing. So part of that is to chew, to eat, to chew, to eat. Um, we have a saying, uh, you know, spit out the bones, eat the chicken, and just allow the Holy Spirit just to continue to do a work in you. So um, that's it. Thanks, Martin. Uh,